If you're in the fields of HR or training and development, it's likely that you've heard some about the use of artificial intelligence and gamification in organizations. Technological advancement, of course, is nothing new. However, the ways in which we can use or misuse technology on the people side of business continues to evolve rapidly. One of the top experts on the use of innovative technologies in assessment, employee selection, adult learning, and research methods is Richard Landers. Richard is an associate professor of psychology at the University of Minnesota, where he also holds the John P. Campbell Distinguished Professorship of Industrial and Organizational Psychology. He joined us for a fascinating conversation, so stay tuned. Welcome to the Indigo Podcast, an exploration of human flourishing at work and beyond. I'm Ben Barron of Indigo Anchor and Cleveland State University. And I'm Chris Everett of Indigo Anchor. For more information, please visit us at www.indigopodcast.com. Well, Richard Landers, welcome to the Indigo Podcast. Yeah, thanks so much. Yes, we're finally going to talk about all the AIs. (laughs) 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 We're going to talk about tech. Let's get this episode's going to be so fun. The prep was so fun, and you know, in the end, Richard Landers is so fun. So that's thanks. that's <laughs> right. Thanks for coming on, man. Well, thanks so much. It's a lot of pressure. This, <laughs> <laughs> this is going to be great. So we're going to talk about you know technology and its intersection with how we run and uh, experience mm. our organizations. We're going to talk about gamification and artificial intelligence. And we'll talk about some implications for leaders and organizations along the way. And so maybe we'll start with this kind of broader theme of, you know, technology and why it's it's very cool and it's nice, but it's not <laughs> magic. Uh, so we'll talk a little bit about that. But be- first, before we get into that, I'd like to just hear a little bit about your journey, Richard, um, you know, and your, and how you have evolved over the years to becoming both cool and magical. So, you know, what is your, prof- what is your professional career kind of uh, look like? How have you gotten where you are today? <laughs> sure. Uh, so when I was, when I was a kid, I, I was on a very tech oriented journey. Like I started using a, I'm, I'm a, I'm an, Sometimes I call us the geriatric millennials. Uh, so I, <laughs> I use a computer at a very early age, uh, and uh, just just really found it. Uh, I don't know. I, it, it was sort of amazing to me to be able to control technology at a very sort of fine and detailed level. Uh, and I, I started even doing like computer programming when I was maybe eight or ten ish, somewhere in that kind of area. And 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 that interest really just carried on for a long time until college, when I took a comp sci class and uh, at that point dis- discovered that most uh, computer scientists work in cubicles and they usually take a lot of instructions from other people. Uh, and I didn't like any of that. Uh, so I decided <laughs> uh, I decided to change to something else. And I switched over to, to psychology um, and then to I.O. toward the end of college. But um, but yeah, that, that sort of interest in tech, it, it's it's almost like um, I got that advice early on that whatever you really love should remain a hobby. Like, don't don't make that the core of your work. Make that something that you can dip into. And so I, I made the core something I find really interesting. I mean, I love IO psychology, but uh, it, it the tech just sort of, I don't know, there's this little like spark of excitement in the background for me. And it makes me always want to bring that into my work. So I, I, I've ended up in this position of kind of blending those worlds as best I can. Uh, just to, to blend what I'm uh, passionate about and also what I just, I don't know, it has that, that deep spark. I, I don't know how else to explain it. Um, but just, yeah. And see, especially seeing other people using, because technology is everywhere, of course, now, and it's very exciting and, and everybody wants a bit of it in, in whatever they're doing. But uh, I also see people misusing it and misunderstanding it. And and coming from that sort of long view, uh, I can see a lot of the harm that can do too. Uh, and I really want to help people gain some of that uh, cross expertise, I guess, that that I found so valuable all these years. Yeah. So for the abacus loving paper wielding folk out there that it's <clears throat> hard to get by anymore without technology. Um, I remember dealing with a very senior person at a large organization said, well, if our systems go down, they can just like continue their work on paper. And we had, we had <laughs> to say, hey, th- we don't have any more of those paper processes. And and this was just one of those kind of legacy holdovers. And I see it a lot in HR. But today we're going to kind of demystify 
and not only HR and people development and a whole other places that doesn't specifically have to do with software development. But mm. so let, let's just start at the bottom, right? Or start with what should be first. What is technology anyway? <laughs> well, I mean, I mean, let me let me point out an abacus is technology. <laughs> so, yeah. so as is paper, I, I, you know, as, as far back as you go, any time that uh, humans create a thing to do something that we had to do more manually before, uh, that's a technology. So, uh, you know, paper was is a way that uh, paper and the ability to write and, and writing on documents, you know, that, that, that was essentially a way to prevent needing oral histories and needing to remember everything that everyone has ever told you in your in your group or tribe or whatever, um, back in our very early days as a, as a, as a species. Um, so in, you know, it, it, it's all about trying to find useful and appropriate ways to replace capabilities that we previously had and improve upon them. It's never about in, in, increase. Uh, it's never about creating something completely new, uh, even, even in a lot of the AI space. Like most of what we're seeing is about recreating uh, how humans previously we're doing something like can, can humans watch a video interview and uh, make ratings? Well, great. Now maybe we can we can use technology to recreate that, maybe even improve it and, and tweak it in little ways. But fundamentally, it's still about taking human abilities and, and improving them or expanding them or refining them. Uh, it's never it's never this massive magical jump into just, you know, now suddenly we can do blank. Well, if, if you think there's a big magical jump it's because you didn't actually understand all the steps that occurred along the way to get to that point. Because uh, there are always a huge number. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you touched on something that I think is really interesting, and and it's you know that a lot of times people talk about or they treat technology, whatever it is, um, mm. as magic, right? Mm -hmm. And and why do you think that is, and how might that be problematic? So yeah, the the big issue is I, I think uh, that when there is a high complexity pro process, when when a lot of different experts have over a long period of time built a technology that actually recreates not, not just one human doing a thing, but really dozens or hundreds or what would previously have taken thousands of people, you have all of that expertise baked into uh, one single process or one computer program or whatever. For a person from the outside of that, for a non-expert looking in, it's so complex and has so many moving parts. It just it's, it, it's much easier. It's cognitively simpler to say, oh, it just works. It just does things. It makes decisions. It it does all these things that it's not really doing, but it's easier to think of it in that sort of holistic, uh, that sort of holistic fashion than to actually take the time to learn how is it doing that? What are all the different steps? What are all the pieces it needs? How is it combining information? That's that's hard. And people people just by default don't usually do the hard thing. Right. So, you know, there's all these pieces. One of the things that dealing with, you know, navigating the business space is a lot of people don't know the basis of stuff like, you know, database design. Mm. Generally, everything within an organization is you're pulling a report. Oh, we got to do some reporting. Well, where are they going to get the data? It's going to be stored yeah. somewhere, right? Um, or they don't know how to query a database. And so because they don't have a broad level of understanding of that for them there's always you know we we call them the excel weenies every team had one <laughs> so so that the director or vp wouldn't have to go draw all the stuff the excel weenie mm. could do it and they'll give them titles of anything senior project analyst it's like oh <laughs> oh actually you're the re you say well what did you do in a typical week ah oh, you're the excel person i see i see um so there's some of that stuff. So what are some of the steps that we might take to pull back the curtain and make technology less magic? Mm. Well, um, I mean, I think it's useful to think psychologically what goes on in those situations. Like your, your Excel people, when they talk about, um, when, when they get into a meeting with, with database admins or database designers, they're, they're using their own frame of reference. Like they're saying, oh, the way I understand data is... I download a file and it shows columns and rows and that's my data. And it doesn't necessarily go any steps beyond that because they don't, they don't have any uh, uh, standard by which to you know, compare that. So trying to understand what expertise people bring to the table and then trying to reframe and rephrase things in the terms that they understand, 
I mean, I, I think even with the Excel people, for example, it's, it's very easy to explain database complexity when you say things like, oh, this is an awful lot like having, our database is an awful lot like having an Excel document, but with two or 300 sheets. And the different things we need are all in different places. But instead of being able to click on the sheets, we have to use code. Like that, that little jump alone is enough to say, oh, oh okay, I kind of see how this connects to the problems that I would face in my Excel world. Uh, and, and trying to to peel back the curtain, in a sense, uh, can really help. And, and that's true across all contexts. Um, you know, in, in the AI space, we, we have the same problem often where there's this uh, very common uh, anthropomorphization right now of, of AIs. I mean, people say the AI decided, the, the AI chose. Um, and we do that because we imagine uh, we imagine what a human would do if they were engaged in that same task. So if yeah, you have an AI, it. it was the AI. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sorry, I had to fire you. That, I mean, don't blame me, man. It's that the AI yeah. said do it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. It, it, you know, it's 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 so hard. I, even even as somebody who I mean, I built. Uh, I don't even like to say I built AIs because because once you have actually done AI work, it, 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 it doesn't seem quite so magical. So I don't even want to say I've built AIs. I've built algorithms that make predictions, which is basically what AIs do. Um, and uh, to try to even, at, at times, it's hard to even break down the processes I've written. Like, I understand them as I write the code. And then maybe two weeks later, I look at them like, I'm not, I, so, I remember what that does, but I don't remember exactly how it does it. Like, even as an expert, it, it's easy to abstract out and then try to put aside what you've already finished. So for somebody coming at that who has no frame of reference, who's just like, the way I understand your AI grading interviews is because that hiring manager over there has graded interviews. So I assume it kind of works like that. And then it doesn't go any deeper. Uh, and that's how you end up with people saying, oh, the AI, yeah, the AI decided, the AI hired you, the AI fired you, the AI whatever, without and really just completely disconnect all the human parts of it, which are which is really what drives what they do. Right. And so on a surface level, you know, and, and just the basis level, if you're a head of HR in an organization and you probably bought some basic package, maybe it's a web-based package for, you know, managing incoming applicants, mm. doing annual performance reviews. And then now it's like, ooh, our systems are getting dated or maybe creaking under this stuff. There, there's not a whole lot of understanding because the vendors come and say, hey, what was like in the year 2000, everything that was cool was 2000. <laughs> You could get the mm -hmm. vacuum cleaner 2000. Then we had high definition television. And it's like, oh, mm -hmm. well, now you get the vacuum cleaner HD. I mean, vacuums <laughs> aren't HD, right? But now mm -hmm. it's like, hey, you got the vendor software. This not only does it have the cup holder armrest, it has the AI. The, the guys across the street have the AI. And we saw some of this in early cloud adoption. CEOs being, hey, are you even in the cloud, bro? Um, not yet, yeah. but next week we are. Right. Yeah. So how deep does somebody have to go to start getting their arms around some of these ideas just from an end user perspective? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of parts to that. Uh, I, I, I think that one issue here is to recognize that there are market forces driving a lot of these companies to call what they're doing different things <laughs> uh, when when they really hadn't necessarily changed their underlying practices at all. Uh, we saw it, I think the first time we got a lot of press around this was blockchain, when suddenly everybody was a blockchain company. And now nobody's a blockchain company because no one cares anymore. Uh, so it's <laughs> it's this weird sort of, of shift over time. Like a lot of those companies never actually did anything different. They just relabeled what they were doing or they, they maybe sort of vaguely connected it in. The same thing is happening with AI, where you do have a lot of companies, uh, even in the HR space, who are already doing basic predictive modeling. They're saying, oh, you know, I'm going to take uh, information about your current employees based on all the various data sources you have and try to identify high potentials and then give that to somebody so they can use that information. And maybe that kind of program now would be called AI and would not have been 10 years ago. So there, there are a lot of products out there that, that are being called AI or being labeled AI that are not really fundamentally different than what was done in the past. Having said that, there, there are some real advances that are coming under the label of AI uh, because the predictive models that we can make now are much more complicated than the ones we can make before. And if, if someone wants to really be able to evaluate uh, a, an AI product or something being called an AI product, they have to think of it in these, these modeling terms. Like, what are the inputs? 
what are they doing to them? And what is coming out the other end? And how are you evaluating the quality and success of that, that output? Um, and it, it really varies by area. So I, I think the only way to, to deal with that is to uh, you know, think about what specific domains where you think prediction is useful. Uh, you know, selection is probably the most common when you're, when you're hiring people uh, trying to predict who's going to be the good performer, who is uh, not going to turn over or who's going to stay a certain amount of time, uh, who is not going to cause trouble, whatever, whatever outcome you're interested in. Um, and then say, well, in that context, if I was trying to predict that, what would I need to know? And I'd want to know I wasn't breaking any laws. <laughs> I would want to know uh, that I was getting information that was relevant to the job that people were going to be doing, like those kind of basic questions. And then ask the vendor, how are you addressing these questions? So it should never be, oh, you have an AI product. Oh, you have a case study where it worked, whatever worked means. Uh, and then uh, just make an adoption decision on the basis of that. They have to go one step deeper. You don't have to know like how to code, but you have to know, oh, well, that means that they're getting data, they're interpreting data, they're doing something with it. It's related to my organization in some, some way, but they, it's up to them to explain exactly how. Uh, and then they're going to get results at the end. Are they evaluating those? Are they checking to make sure that, that those are actually useful for me? Like, how do, how do they know that the, the, the end result of their predictions are valid? All of those questions, that's the level we need to be at. And if a vendor, uh, you know, sidesteps, I, I think that's a really bad sign. Uh, if, they, if you say, how do you, how do you collect your data? And they say, oh, we, it's the best. We use all the best sources. Uh, they're, they're really excellent. We have all these case studies showing exactly how useful and great they've been. That is not a real answer. Uh, and that means that the person you're talking to doesn't actually know their own product uh, or, or they're hiding things from you, one of the two. You need to find a cousin. I'm going to riff, riff on a few things and you tell me yes mm. or no. If you need to ask about what an AI is, probably buying an HR system that says it has AI might not be for you as a defining reason to make that purchase. <laughs> yeah, that I'm not a driving force in that. Yeah, I, I, I would agree with that. <laughs> if, if you if you can't, if you don't know what a data scientist is, nor have one in your organization, you should probably handle with care. <laughs> I it's, it's a funny one. I'm not sure I know what a data scientist is at this point. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, it, yeah, that it's the same problem with AI is these terms can refer to so many different things. Uh, and it's it's really more about the skills. It's more about the capabilities of the people in the case of data scientists. Like there, there are Excel folks who call themselves data scientists now. So where what are the actual skills you need in your organization? And do you know what skills are being used in your organization? Do you know uh, what data related capabilities already exist in your organization? I think that's that's the fundamental question. If you don't know that, then you definitely shouldn't be looking at AI products yet. Man, that's that's so great, because I, I just want to throw out there that people are trying to sell stuff you, you might not need if you're not at that level of maturity. So oh, I yeah. think about technologies, things that business leaders need to know today, you should know a little bit about databases and how at least yours is designed and how that works, right? You should understand project management. So if you're going to buy tech, how are mm. you going to get that installed and not just say, I don't know, the IT guys are doing it, right? Mm. Um, kind of some technology strategy for your organization. Your CIO, CTO, We'll spend all the hours with you. If, if you're at a senior level in an organization, you say, hey, man, can you help me understand our application strategy in a way that I can understand? He, mm -hmm. He'll pass out in shock, right? So <laughs> these are things that you guys can go out and do. Now, Richard, your, your special specialization is in gamification and AI. So let's just peel mm -hmm. back the covers on some of that. So, you know, you mentioned, hey, 10 years ago, we wouldn't have even called it AI. There's a bit of that buzzword of the week kind of going on. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, we've got the AI. Don't you have the AI? Yeah, I AI every Friday, bro. You know, <laughs> so what is AI <laughs> in modernity now? What? How would we want to mm -hmm. think about that if you could shape that for our listeners a bit? Sure. So uh, when, when people say AI, I, I think the most common assumption is they're talking about what what researchers and people in the community would call strong AI or complete AI. That's that's AI at the movie of at, at the level of like the movie AI, uh, as in a, a distinct thinking entity that makes decisions and basically like a human, but in computer form. Yeah, so that Turing yeah. test type stuff. 
Yeah, well, even beyond that, uh, yes. <laughs> I mean, so I, th- I have encountered many assumptions about exactly what an AI is capable of that from the perspective of somebody who, who, who you know, again, who's built some of these things is just, is just silly. Uh, like there's no, there's no deciding going on in an AI. Like that, that's the human capability people want that, that you're giving an AI data and the data somehow makes a decision. That's a smart decision. Like all of that treating AI like a human, that is the problem. And that doesn't exist. We are so far away from that. It is, it is many decades, if not longer away. The singularity uh, where, where we are. <laughs> it, I, I, I am actually very confident we will get there. I don't know if we'll get there in like any of our lifetimes, but uh, at some point we will probably get to that level of complexity, but we're not, we're nowhere close to it right now. Uh, right now, what we can do is create models. And all a model is, is taking some kind of outcome and predicting that outcome from other data. And what AI now can do that it couldn't do a number of years ago, which is the reason we hear about it so much more, is we we now have better capabilities to predict things from pictures, from audio, from video. Whereas in the past, it was it was more of that Excel kind of approach. Like, oh, we collected a piece of data. We have a number in a column. Can we use that to predict something? Now we can say, oh, well, I have like uh, an entire video of an expert doing something. Can I predict whether or not this other person will be successful by using the prediction, uh, the predictive model I get out of the videos that I'm using as reference material? So that that is new and that is really powerful. It, it does also require massive data sets, uh, like absolutely huge numbers of observations and very expensive to collect data sets in order to do that kind of prediction. But at the end of the day, it's still prediction. It's still, I, I gave it a photo and then I gave it some other photos and I said, can you predict something about these new photos from the old photos? There's, there's nothing more to it than that. Uh, the, the applications can be cool. So I, I mentioned already once I'm um, predicting um, uh, performance on the job or retention or whatever from, from virtual interviews. That's one. In the game space, we've got a lot of other cool stuff. So uh, like we've done game-based assessments where people will basically sit down and play you know, a computer game for like 10 minutes. And we can create scores on various psychological attributes with a fair degree of validity, um, meaning that we can we can't do anything yet like predict leadership potential, but we can do things like say, well, what is this person's like cognitive capabilities? Uh, how is this person engaged in problem solving? We can do that kind of thing. Um, and, and that again, 10 years ago, but it would have been real hard <laughs> uh, because the data sets that we're using in games are things like mouse clicks. So if I have a hundred thousand mouse clicks uh, over the course of a game, can I maybe over, uh, you know, a year, I could stare at one person's data myself and try to intuit, oh, they moved here at this point, and, and maybe that means this, and maybe that means that. But the new capabilities in AI mean I can automate that kind of reasoning process uh, in terms of looking for patterns, at least, not not reasoning in the human sense, but looking for patterns in mouse movements and try to say, oh, well, a person that goes, uh, you know, they click on the thing that's really important, and they immediately super fast, move their mouse over somewhere else, click there, move back, move back, move back. That person is really, you know, making quick decisions. And I can make that inference from data in a way now that I, I couldn't do before. So that's, yeah, that's, that's the basic idea. In all, in all these modern AI, uh, in all these modern AI applications, we're seeing very clever uses of data to predict things that we couldn't predict so much before. Text, uh, or predict from things we couldn't predict so much before. Text, uh, videos, audio, uh, those, are, those are really the main ones. You know, so what I'm wondering as you're talking about this, Richard, is, you know, if you were to think of an organization that was using some of these technologies really well, um, they were doing a good job with it uh, on mm-hmm. the, the maybe the people side, the HR side, um, what kinds of things would they be doing? What does that look like? Um, and, and, you know, do you have any examples of that? Yeah, I, and you know, it depends on the specific domain. Um, so I'm, I'm most familiar with with hiring. That's that's where I do most of, sure. most of my work. Um, so a company that is really, so that's what I'm going to talk about. (laughs) So (laughs) uh, a company that's doing AI based hiring really well, um, is, is essentially, uh, doing everything that we know in, in, you know, in industrial organizational psychology, uh, on how to create good tests, which is a massive known body of work on exactly what a, a good test looks like. So an AI based test is not really all that different. So when you, uh, let's say that you're, you're buying an AI-based selection product. 
So somebody says, let's even take virtual interviewing because it's an easy example and a lot of people talking about it right now, that people go into a website, they do an interview with a prompt. There's no, uh, there's no interviewer. They're just given questions. They respond. Um, and then you have a video that comes out the other end. Uh, and the company says, we can turn those videos into, you know, identify your your high, your best performers, people that are stick around your company for a long time from that video. The questions that one then has to ask to be a, a good consumer of AI are all the same questions that you do with regular tests. One, how, where did this data set come from? Like, what are your reference videos, your reference interviews? How did you collect them? Like, is this random organizations over time? Did you build it in some specific way? Like, who is it? Who's previous data are we essentially replicating here Two, which is what we would, I would think of as a content validity kind of dimension. Uh, dimension two then, uh, is that once you know kind of where the data set's coming from, you ask, well, how are you actually modeling it? Like what is, what is going on behind the scenes? What are, what are the prediction procedures you're using? Are you using their audio? Are you using the way that they talk and the inflections of their voice? Are you using their text? Are you looking at the content of their voice? Uh, when you use their text, are you grabbing um, like themes that they're bringing up? Are you trying to identify like specific topics that are coming up? Or are you just kind of throwing everything at the wall and seeing what predicts what? Like, there's one approach in, in this space is to basically say, how many times do you say words, like individual words? Did you bring up the word, you know, synergy? And that becomes an, an item <laughs> in a data set. Uh, and, and that maybe that's what they're doing. Some of these companies, that is what they're doing. Um, or are you doing something more complicated? Uh, are you taking the video? Uh, if you're taking video, how are you treating skin color? How are you treating mannerisms? How are you treating hand movements? Like what exactly is going into this model? So that's a sort of due diligence component. Um, then after they implement it, then it requires rigorous testing to say, uh, do you do validation studies? Do you, uh, you know, do you ask your current employees to do interviews and uh, see how they perform on the interview and how they get scored and compare that with how well they're doing on the job or the retention or whatever you're predicting? Uh, then do you try that with applicants and see how that goes? What, what you know, we think of that as a predictive validation study. Do you, uh, do you actually rigorously evaluate this product you've got? And do you do that in all the dimensions you should? So that's, and the legal dimensions too are the important part. Are you seeing adverse impact on a, uh, and any particular class membership? Are you, uh, are you getting both high quality uh, hires and also doing so in a way that is legal? Uh, which a lot of these companies right now are kind of glossing over uh, and they're not explaining exactly what they're doing. And there are many cases where what they're doing may not actually be legal. Uh, and it's a, it's a big concern. So a company using these products just knows to ask all those questions. And if they don't get a straight answer, then that's, that's a red flag. And I probably would either poke further there uh, or say, all right, we're a little nervous about you. Let's look at a different product. Yeah, so if I'm sitting out in an organization, one of the things you're like, man, I do better than these other teammates. If only my boss didn't play favorites or if only my mm -hmm. boss didn't have these biases. So, you mm -hmm. know, there's an appeal. We'll give it to the computers. But the computers, right, they can only predict based on the way, you know, it's similar to the autonomous driving car. Mm -hmm. You know, on one side, well, if everybody was an awesomely done autonomous driving cars, we'd probably have less wrecks. But we almost do want that human bias and influence in some of these places, right? So how when we start to look at that, how do we navigate that ethical bend of, hey, humans should be involved in this hiring process, which anybody that's tried to train managers how to hire or interview, mm -hmm. it's like it's getting a medical degree in dentistry and pulling root canals is probably easier, for, <laughs> right? Versus an AI, which is equally hard. I mean, how do we navigate that? How might we think about that as we look at this stuff? Yeah, I, it, it is a, it's probably the biggest challenge that, that um, we see in this space right now is because these, again, because AI is really just predictive modeling and predictive modeling is really just using an existing data set to make new predictions. Uh, that means that we have, a, a, there's a very high bar for ensuring that the original data set was collected ethically, validly, you know, that, that there's that whoever made that data set did so in a responsible way. Because other, otherwise you do just replicate all of the same biases that you already have. 
Uh, you can even introduce new ones. Like if you imagine a company that generated, like a vendor that generated their data set in a biased way, and then they come to your company and say, oh, we don't even need to collect new data from your company. Our, our data sets are great. Our AI is wonderful. We have all these case studies. Uh, and then they use it. They're going to actually introduce new bias from other organizations into yours because you didn't know that that's where they were getting their data from. And they may or may not have been using good practices. So that this is this is why I really emphasize the the due diligence component of this to do the research on exactly where things are coming from because there is an ethical obligation to ensure that the models are being created um, the the one the data that that you're pulling from are of high quality uh, and ethically created uh, and, but two that they are being modeled in an ethical way as well because there there are some practices that are really probably illegal. And I say probably because none of this has been challenged yet. Uh, I'm sure it will at some point. But um, practices like, um, actually, one of the big ones that I worry about is uh, what's called, a, it has a lot of different names. One is dialect correction. That when you have a, uh, a, a natural language processing algorithm, which really just means you're using text as the input in your in your model, what people are saying, there's a recognition that people from different uh, income classes, different races, different national origins, like all sorts of things that we worry about, speak slightly different dialects of English. And the model is not smart enough to know what a dialect is. So all it's looking for is the the, the actual words. So some or, some uh, you know data science firms, some of the uh, HR tech firms in this space say, oh, well, then we'll do engage in dialogue correction which really means something like, oh, we'll detect if you're using like a South African accent, for example, or we'll detect if you're using uh, an Australian accent or whatever it might be, and then we will correct it. And they're never very clear on what correcting means, but it seems an awful lot like they are making decisions on the basis of how people talk in a systematic, like cultural or even racial kind of way, which is probably not legal given the way that US law is currently made. Like if we're basically detecting, oh, are you speaking like you come from a poor part of Chicago? And I've actually seen this example. Uh, are you speaking like you're coming from a poor part of Chicago? Well, then we're gonna adjust your scores because you came from that group. And that mm. seems an awful lot like, I mean, it's, 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 it's making point bonuses and adjustments on the basis of race. Like it's a step removed, but it's still really targeting groups in a way that, I, just legally, I don't, I don't think is very safe. So if you don't know that's happening <laughs> and the company is not being transparent about it and you're not investigating well enough to know that, uh, yeah, there's a, there's a big ethical issue, I think there um, for both the creators and the consumers of those, uh, those kind of algorithms. Yeah. yeah so I what, I, philosophy... I, what I love about, what I love about your points here, Richard, is that, you know, you emphasize doing the, the due diligence, right. Of asking the right questions and it, I think it puts some uh, responsibility, if not all the responsibility, on the organization that's obtaining these types of technologies to mm. actually understand kind of what's going on, right? At least at a basic level to ask those right questions. Because, you know, these systems, they, they like you mentioned, they aren't deciding, they don't have reason. Um, if, if they're based on garbage, it's going to be you're going to get garbage out, right? Or if it's just oh, yeah. based on not so not so good, you could have not so good on the other end, right? It doesn't have to be total garbage. So I think your point is is really uh, one that that leaders and executives should um, should be paying you know a lot of heed to. Yeah, I don't know why the philosophy didn't come first. If I'm sitting in this place, <laughs> I don't want to touch that with a ten foot pole. And then I'm also mm -hmm. thinking, okay, they're so young and nascent. Everybody needs to post on Glassdoor what software package people are using. And then you can, you know, there's a anti-business model to make. This is mm -hmm. how you have to talk if you want to hack this algo so you can get to the second round of interviews at company X, Y, Z, right? You know, because mm -hmm. you birth an algorithm that make, but we do this all the time. It's part of nature, right? How we dress up. Okay, I'm going to put on a Brooks Brothers suit and go on in, right? We're trying to dress mm -hmm. ourselves up and if we don't feel like we're getting a fair shake through an interview process that everybody's just another brick in the wall, that's probably bad for your brand, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, so th there, there is a, a sort of other perspective on this, which is that it's actually what you're saying, that, that human processes are already quite biased by themselves. That when, you, when your hiring managers are paying attention to what you're dressed like, 
for example, which they are, because that's very human. That's very hard not to pay attention to how somebody is kind of put together visually, um, that that's a problematic process. Uh, and AI models can help address that. That's a different question than do they? Uh, and so for any given product, maybe it's been created in a way that it can help address those human failings and human issues. Maybe it just amplifies them. And you don't, you don't know from the surface. You, you are relying on the company reporting accurately and transparently everything that they've done. It's really, it's really ra uh, why we're seeing so much attention very suddenly on the idea of AI audits. Because there's a growing recognition that if, if these companies are just given free reign to create these models without telling anyone what they're doing, that we have no idea how horrible under the hood might be. And maybe, maybe there are companies doing this in a, in a highly ethical fashion, but we, we don't even know that because nobody, nobody releases their models. We, we don't have information on the processes they're using uh, quite often. So, this, I mean, this is an area of rapid change. Uh, I, I, I fully expect there to be uh, legislation about this, even in the U.S., which is usually lags behind in, in privacy and rights and such of, in much of the world. Um, I expect there to be legislation about this relatively soon. Uh, in congressional terms, you know, maybe five, 10 years. Um, mm -hmm. But that, that the goal in that uh, will be to, uh, to try to encourage, I suppose, or maybe even regulate to require transparency so that we, do, we can answer some of those questions. Like, what is going on in this thing? And uh, is it just replicating human biases? Are you making an effort to fix human biases? If you're doing that, how are you doing it? Why are you doing it? Does it actually work? Have you evaluated that? All of those are questions that we need better answers to for a lot of these uh, vendor products. Yeah, that's great. So you know, we've talked a little bit about artificial intelligence and unpacked a little bit about what it is and maybe demystified it a little bit for folks. I'd like to mm. turn our attention now to this idea of gamification. And, you know, it's it's one of these things that's mm. kind of become a little bit of a buzzword out there, um, you know, in terms of uh, gamifying training and development, those types of things and others. Um, but maybe you could unpack that one a little bit, too, for us. And, you know, what is gamification and you know, how is it used in organizations? What do you see going on there? Sure. Um, so gamification came from games uh, and, you know, digital entertainment games now, biggest entertainment industry on earth, uh, makes far more money and far more people engaged than in film and TV, like anything. So there's just massive amount of money and attention on on the gaming industry at this point. Um, and one of the reasons that people get excited about it is because it seems like it has this massive motivational potential that you can create a game and people will just throw their time into it because they find it so intrinsically interesting and amazing and motivating to play. So gamification came from that, this idea of, oh, well, we don't, we don't actually want to make an entertainment product, but maybe we can create something that has that same motivational force to get people to just kind of like force them into really loving their work and really wanting to do their jobs and going above and beyond all the time, uh, sort of that uh, engagement holy grail in a way. Um, so that's... That's a lot of the a little cynical motivation for it. Um, <laughs> it it's in practice uh, doesn't really often it can, but it doesn't often really get at that. Uh, so the most common way you see gamification is with what in in the both the gamification industry and in in academia we we think of it as PBL points, badges, and leaderboards. And PBL is by a good margin the least powerful and most useless of a part of gamification. It is <laughs> it is essentially nothing more than old school like behaviorism or uh, you know your sort of classic uh, Skinner esque like I'm going to give you a pellet reward so that I, you do the thing I like more often. And it it kind of works uh, in, in the sense that in a in a in, in a sort of flat system where people are like kind of motivated to do a lot of things, you say, hey, look over here. If I give you some points for this, we'll recognize that you did that thing. Yeah, it, it can direct people's attention. It can get them a little more excited sometimes, but it doesn't broadly work. It doesn't massively change motivation or anything. Uh, and that's the, the sort of false sales pitch that often comes along with those systems. You see, oh, you can... On your, you know, your employee knowledge sharing website, uh, you can, we're going to reward every time that you post a question so that, or every time you answer a question to really recognize your expertise, blah, blah, blah. And that kind of helps, but not dramatically. Uh, and, and the idea that just by putting in points into something that you're going to just massively change how people act is, is, is very silly. 
Now, the, the bright side of that is that there are other techniques in gamification that are really powerful and can do quite a lot. Um, one of the most, one of the ones I like the most is uh, narrativization, which is the idea that you turn things into stories. You can imagine this, for example, on a, like a full job-wise basis. It's not that you're just coming in, getting your work done, and leaving. It's instead, we're coming in, let me show you how what you're doing is connected to this big picture in. This goes back to something we might even, we, we would call job characteristics. It's an old old model in IO psychology. This idea, let me show you how you're connected to everything and how you are an, a, a protagonist in this story of this organization and how by you doing your job in the best way fashion, you're gonna, not only are you gonna kind of win, but you're also going to benefit all these people around you and they're gonna benefit, you're gonna benefit them, they're gonna benefit you. You're part of this big system, you're all working together. That idea, of putting you into a story that has a lot of motivational potential in a way that like I'm going to give you some points really doesn't. So that's uh, that that idea and that's that's also really powerful in the recruitment context. The idea that you can say not only is it just like here's where the break room is but instead like this is where this happens and this is where this happens. Like that this that little motion can get people more uh, emotionally engaged into the organization. So there, there are examples on both sides. Uh, it's, it's all about taking like, what is a game and trying to kind of mimic what a game does and why people like games, but not necessarily making a game. Uh, so to just come in and say, how can, we make, how can we make this seem more like a story that you're a part of? Like that's a very common narrativization, gamification kind of technique. Uh, that, yeah, I, I, I think has a lot of power uh, in, in organizations, especially when, when it's part of your... Um, it's part of the organizational mission or strategic vision uh, to, you know, I, I edge away from the family mentality, but it's part of the vision to say, like, we're all in this together. We are we're a group to, that, that, that is working toward a greater good of some sort um, to pull people into a story that's going to further support that mission and really push uh, employees to think of it that way uh, and 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 really match up with that kind of strategic vision for the organization. Yeah. So for some people out there that are going, ew. This sounds gross. I got to be come to work and be forced to play games. I don't want to. <laughs> I just want a paycheck. Mm -hmm. But just think that kind of job design is kind of gamifying, right? Oh, yeah. You, when mm -hmm. you're looking for your best career, right, which for you was not software development because, <laughs> you know, the reasons we discussed. But you're kind of asking, like, how can I find a, a role where the game is one I enjoy playing? Mm hmm. And, and so what's the difference between some of that when we're gamifying and people are like, yuck, how do you navigate that line between yuck and man, this yeah. is really awesome? Because I would personally prefer an employer that's trying to make it pleasant for me at the workplace than one that's yeah. like, well, welcome to the dungeon, get to work, you know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, it's there's there's definitely a line between good and bad and ethical and unethical uh, gamification. Uh, so the, the idea that you're going in and trying to trick people into performing better is a bad one to think of this as like, I, I, I see it a lot in, in my consulting when people come and say, oh, so we're, we're really worried about how engaged people are and we're just going to make them more engaged. How can we use gamification to do that? That is not coming at this from the right perspective. That is, that is an idea of manipulation and it leads you down an awful lot of, uh, really, unhealthy and probably ultimately not very effective strategies. Because even if you get people to work a little bit harder, you're also very likely to start to foster resentment. And people are saying, ah, this, I feel kind of dirty being a part of this. It's the same reaction that um, a lot of folks get in sales organizations when they start using leaderboards to say like, who's the top performer this time? Let's shower praise on you and kind of shame the people at the bottom. Like it, it creates a different psychological dynamic than just we're all in this together working towards something good. Uh, so there, there's, there are definitely different flavors <laughs> of gamification, uh, and you have to be very cognizant of that. Not, not just, um, uh, not, not just in terms of like using tools that are ethical or unethical, but also in terms of how people are seeing it and perceiving it. Because even, even something that like narrativization, if you came in and presented that as saying, "Hey guys, you're all part of a story now," like that's not the same <laughs> as getting buy-in to say, I, you know, I know everybody has uh, uh, been struggling lately. Let me, let's just walk through why we're all doing this together. And let me show you why you are a key part of that. It's, it's a lot of the same messages in this example as we get like in, in traditional leadership kind of stuff. It's more about inspiring and directing than it is forcing and pushing. Uh, so 
yeah, the same the same occurs in this gamification context. Like the the goal is to uh, get people to make the decision for themselves to want to change their behavior, not to somehow force them into being better performers somehow. That's that's just not a good goal. Yeah, you know, one thing I'm wondering is, you know, you mentioned uh, creating a story, this narrativization of uh, of work, perhaps, as taking, you know, some of the ideas of what's appealing and motivational, perhaps, about games, bringing it into the workplace. Are there other aspects that you think are promising uh, that that we could maybe learn from games and use as as leaders ourselves or as team members? Yeah, you know, there's a lot of little uh, details in how gamification or how games work to motivate people. Um, that, that it's in some ways it's still kind of a repackaging of job characteristics, but it's useful framework, I think. Um, so for example, uh, we already know that like uh, under like job underload is, is a bad problem. Uh, and that's a key element in game design is that you always know what's coming next. You always know what your next big challenge is. You always know what the tools are going to be that you need to solve that challenge. That basic kind of approach of saying, how do we create well-structured goals or series of goals to say, here is your path. And we make sure that's clearly communicated to people in, in, an organ in, in the organization uh, is that's a key element of both kind of leadership, like good leadership and, uh, uh, and gamification. Gamification just provides this structure to think about it in, to say, imagine you are the hero of the story what would the hero story be doing? Can you imagine a hero facing this problem? Like, can you imagine a hero in a story facing a key job, a key challenge, going forward and then saying, oh, people aren't available, I don't have resources, I guess I'm gonna do this tomorrow. Like, that's not a thing that happens in a compelling narrative. And it's also similarly something that really discourages people uh, in, in that kind of story, uh, in work, when they're, when they're facing that same kind of challenge. So taking that, uh, that sort of parallelism to imagine if you were the hero, if you were the protagonist, where are the roadblocks that you would hit? Similarly, where is an employee going to be working, working, stopped? Like they get halted because there's a problem. How are they gonna resolve it? Do they have all the things they need? Are they gonna be able to continue being the hero or are they gonna feel like they have become just a cog in the machine waiting for other things to turn over and happen in the meantime? Uh, it's not. It's definitely not like a you know one-shot fix. It's not something where you can just go in and say, all right, here's our story, let's go. Uh, it's a constantly revi revisioned process to say, like, where are the problem points? Where are people excited? Where are people uh, uh, pushing forward? Who is really benefiting right now? Who is not? How can we have the same, how can we bring the experiences that the people that are engaged to the people that are less engaged um, by, by making them their own uh, heroes? How can we create teams of heroes like these are all the same. These are all these kind of issues that come out of games, uh, and there there are many lessons uh, from uh, from good game design. Uh, and it's hard it's hard to give specific examples for people that haven't played games. But um, <laughs> if you imagine the uh, the feeling of like, oh, I did a thing when you successfully win like a game of Scrabble, or you know, I mean, any game at all. That idea of I've accomplished something. I brought my full like. You know, I, I brought my good game to this. I put in my effort. I saw the victory. I, I saw all the all the good things that came out of it. It's that feeling that you're always shooting for. So consistently engaging in things like job redesign uh, to say, well, in what ways are we not aligned with that good winning feeling at the end? Um, that's that's a very key uh, sort of approach. Hey, you so know, one you thing I kept thinking about earlier. as you were describing that approach is it seems like that approach could also be potentially valuable for an organization that was thinking about specifically career paths, right? So mm. how you're thinking about, you know, uh, how do we keep people over the course of their lifetime or however long they're going to be part of this organization, keeping them excited about wherever they are, wherever they're going? What do you think? Yeah, I, absolutely. I mean, one of the major reasons that people leave organizations is because they don't really see a good growth trajectory for themselves. Like the opportunity, I'm not learning anything new. I'm not, I don't feel like I'm growing anymore. Uh, gamification uh, in that sense is really valuable as a, just a framework to consider, well, at what point is somebody going to stop feeling like they're, that this is that same winning idea. Are they, at what point are they going to feel like they're stagnating? And how do we prevent that from happening? How do we give new new opportunities and new experiences and direct them into new areas uh, in order to prevent, uh, in order to prevent that that feeling that there's nothing left for me here, is um, in a game. There's always something ahead. Like that's a key element of game design. There's always something ahead that's exciting. That's the next new thing. That's the next cool thing we're going to get to. At least in good game design, not all games. Yeah. 
Right. One of the words you used earlier was work under load. And I know everybody knows, obviously, what work overload is. But mm. a lot of people don't understand work under load and why that can be stressful. And then let's talk about how work under load is very different than, say, a gamified work environment. Oh, sure. Well, so... I had a work underload situation uh, many years ago, <laughs> uh, and it, 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 it and this was at an internship. Uh, they gave me some stuff to do, and they assumed it would take me all day. And then every day this would happen for like several weeks. I would get all my work done in about an hour, and then I would just be sitting there. And I would go and say, "Hey, is there anything work?" I was like, "No, no, just keep reviewing." Blah blah blah. It was all sort of like busy work, and it really leads people. It leads to a lot of really bad outcomes because you on one side uh, think that you should be doing something because you're being paid to sit there and you're like, I, surely I should be working on something right now. Um, but two, it feels like a waste of time. Like even though you're being paid, most people want at least some degree of fulfillment. And, and that really varies by how much fulfillment a person wants. Um, and some people are like, I just I want to be doing something and it's fine. I'll get a paycheck. That's fine. Some people really want to be fulfilled and grow and, and expand. And there's a big range there. But nobody wants to just do nothing. That is that is the low line. Well, I, would, I shouldn't say no one. Very few people want to just do nothing uh, for work. Uh, so when we get down to that point, it leads to feelings of maybe maybe I'm not asking the right questions of the bosses. Maybe I maybe there is work that I should be doing and it's going to like the hammer is going to drop later and I don't know it. Uh, maybe they don't value me. Maybe I don't belong here. Like it just it's a big cascade of problems uh, as a result of just not having enough or being clear on exactly what what you're supposed to be doing. Um, sometimes it goes under the name of a uh, role ambiguity when you're like, I'm not quite sure what my job actually is here. Like, am I really doing exactly what I'm supposed to be doing? Uh, yeah, just associated with a lot of really negative outcomes. Yeah, so I think that's a really great thing for leaders and supervisors to keep in mind, right? In terms of when they're thinking about the work, the distribution of work within their department, within their teams, uh, making sure that you're not doing the overload thing, but you're also not doing the underload thing because mm -hmm. uh, both have uh, have negative outcomes. Um, you know, I'm wondering, you've talked a little bit about some implications for, you know, how leaders and executives might think about things like AI and gamification. One thing I was thinking about, too, is, you know, do you think there are any implications that we can think about or address uh, for job seekers, um, you know, if if they know that they are applying for a job uh, that at, a, at an organization that is using mm. these types of technologies, I mean, is it worth it for them to to think about things differently or should they just, you know, kind of do what they've always done? What do you think? Uh, so advice to job seekers who see that organizations are using lots and lots of tech. Yeah. So, I mean, should they uh, should they approach, for example, their their uh, the hiring process differently? Should they do different oh. things in their uh, interviews? Should they structure mm. their resumes in different ways? Or what do you think? <laughs> yeah, you know, it it's it's so hard to predict from a job seeker side because you don't really know. It, it's the, uh, the flip side of the problem. We don't really know just how sophisticated their techniques are. Right. So good, good AI evaluation of resumes, for example, is not what most companies do. Most companies <laughs> still use very old sort of keyword matchy kind of approaches. And then very obviously, yes, you have to have the keyword on there. That leads to all sorts of weird behavior, like let's have the giant block of invisible text at the end of our resume right. so that the <laughs> scanner can find it. Yeah, so if a company is doing that, and you still want to apply there uh, for whatever reason, then yeah, I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't do anything bad to try to game a badly written piece of software, I guess is the way I would put it. Uh, but yeah, if they're doing that, I might, and especially if I was going into a tech technology oriented role, I'd be a little concerned. So right. e even in, even in the HR side, seeing something that's kind of clunky and doesn't work very well, and you see, oh, everybody says, oh yeah, just put this keyword in and you'll get an interview. Like that kind of advice really tanks the credibility of the technological sophistication of the whole thing. We've seen it in a bunch of our research where the perceptions of technological sophistication is like the one number one thing that pops in all of these sort of uh, uh, approaches that companies take to recruitment. That if you have a clunky system, people are going to say, oh, yeah, that whole company is just not very good with technology. That's the, the reaction people will have. Um, so from, from the applicant perspective, I, I think it is important to know that 
the sophistication of HR and the sophistication of other parts of the organization, not necessarily always aligned real closely. Um, but if they, uh, you know, if, if they still want to, to apply just to, to really uh, target <laughs> or to really only interpret uh, what happens when they talk to actual subject matter experts in the areas that they're applying to, like, don't, don't rely on that part of the process as the window into the organization. Um, but I think that's a that's a big uh, warning message for HR. Like, know that how people see your tech, your as HR tech, that how people perceive that and what they believe uh, its capabilities are will influence how they view the whole organization. Yeah, yeah, that's that's great. So as we start to kind of wrap things up here and start to come in for a, a little bit of a landing, I have two kind of big, broad questions for you, um, given that you're in this this interesting space, looking at the intersection of technology and how we use it on the people side of organizations. I suppose the first question I have is when you think about, you know, the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years um, mm. within that realm, um, you know, is there anything or what what might give you concern or worry you or scare you? <laughs> um, if we if we don't get some regulation of AI modeling, I think it will be very problematic. Uh, that that is what worries me the most. Um, is we're already seeing a huge amount of uh, diversity and approach in what people are doing with these models, and that's only going to keep increasing. Uh, and I, I already see a lot of companies making claims that I know are not supportable using what they're doing. Uh, and if we if we don't have regulation of both the language and the techniques used to create that, it's it's gonna be a mess, like a real nightmare <laughs> to try to to try to piece together what exactly is going on uh, in a lot of these a lot of these systems. So. Uh, what what I see is changing is that the the diversity of um, the inputs in these models is going to continue to become more complex. Right now, there there is kind of a, a soft limit, so we we can take a, a short video and use that to get some little uh, conclusions about a person's capabilities. That that will only become more precise and more uh, useful over time. So it's. It sort of goes hand in hand. As as we get more capabilities and more useful, th these models can do more useful things uh, and do so with greater accuracy. We're also opening up bigger and bigger doors to uh, practices that are not so great. Uh, so yeah, it's good yeah. and bad, I guess, coming ahead. Right, right. So I guess then on the uh, the other side of that, and and I'll let you kind of finish us off, us off here <laughs> and give you the last word. But you know, what gives you hope? Uh, what what are the things that kind of you think are really exciting um, that are going to you know have the potential to you know help people actually flourish more mm. in their work lives as it relates to technology? And I'll let you kind of take us in uh, for closing there. <laughs> sure. Uh, you know, I I, I am I am uh, optimistic in the end because people seem to care now. <laughs> so we've we've had predictive modeling for a long time. And it's always been sort of this technical behind the scenes thing that happened. But now we're seeing a much broader societal interest in these predictive models and how much control they can have over people's lives, work, work or otherwise. Um, and as that attention increases, as the stakes increase, uh, you know, so, so, do the, so does the potential uh, for what these systems can potentially do in an ethical and uh, uh, beneficial way. So I, I am I, I I think it's I think the net is good. <laughs> I think it's a net good to have this kind of modeling coming up now, and I, I do have I do have hope for for where this will go. Um, I, it's going to be a little rough to get there, <laughs> but as uh, because of the the high degree of attention now on it, uh, I yeah I, I think in the end we're going to have better models. We're going to have. Uh, ethical models. It, it is forcing us to sort of societally reckon with exactly what things are fair and unfair uh, in terms of work outcomes and work, um, uh, you know, the benefits that people get out of out of work. Um, so I think that's very positive as we as we continue to explore that and have much broader open conversations about it. So it's yeah, in the end, I, I think we will emerge in a better place than we are now. Um, I would I would love, for example, to see the unstructured random uh, hiring manager asking whatever random questions they want and really liking candidates because they went to the same college kind of thing really die off. 
Uh, so that would be great. <laughs> um, pro- probably won't get rid of it entirely, but uh, as this as this world increases in in power and popularity, I, I think that's the way we're headed uh, toward a fairer and and more useful set of uh, uh, of technologies for organizational organizations and people in general. Uh, yeah, I think the, the road ahead is 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 a good one. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, Richard, you're a, a fascinating person with doing some really cool stuff. And I guess I, I did lie because I do have one more question. So oh. um, you know, just it's a simple one. Uh, where can people find out more about you if they're looking for stuff on social media or, or you have a website? Oh, sure. Yeah. I, so we put summaries of all of our labs work on uh, rlanders.net. Uh, I'm also pretty active on Twitter uh, and LinkedIn. Twitter is, uh, oh, what is Twitter? I think it's at uh, <laughs> rnlanders, I think. Um, yeah. And LinkedIn too. Uh, pretty active there as well. Wonderful. Well, we'll put links to all of those in the show notes. And I just want to say on behalf of Chris and myself, uh, Richard Landers, it was a pleasure. And thank you so much for being a guest on the Indigo podcast. Well, thanks so much. This is great. Thanks for listening to the Indigo Podcast. If you like this podcast, please consider helping us by rating us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, telling your friends about us, having us on your podcast, or mentioning us on social media. Our website is www.indigopodcast.com, where you can access more information about us and this episode. Thanks again, and we look forward to talking with you again soon.